This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, March 22nd, 2022 on your public radio station, KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. I'm Kyle Kellams. Later this hour, we'll begin a three-part series about suicide and African-Americans. Jonathan Reeves with our partner station, KASU, brings us part one in about 20 minutes. Nearly 150 years ago, a battle erupted in what is now eastern Oklahoma, a gun battle that left 11 people dead, several more wounded, and is believed to be the deadliest civilian gun battle in American history. Many people haven't heard of the Going Snake tragedy, or if they have, what they have heard may be informed by accounts influenced by sensationalized or biased reporting. Next month, the United States Marshals Museum will host a two-day symposium to mark the 150th anniversary. Last week, we invited David Kennedy, the curator of collections and exhibits at the museum, to come to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio to discuss the symposium and the Going Snake tragedy and the matters of sovereignty raised because of the incident. Going Snake was the name of a geographic district of what was then called Indian Territory that was adjacent to Arkansas. It was named after a chief in the Cherokee Nation. What would devolve into a fatal gun battle on April 15, 1872, began with the Cherokee Nation trying Zeke Proctor in connection with the death of a Cherokee citizen, Polly Beck. David Kennedy says the Cherokee Nation had clear jurisdiction in the case. The problem was the initial shooting, which took place in February, just west of Siloam Springs, involved a U.S. citizen. And that U.S. citizen, when the deceased's family didn't feel like they were going to be able to get their version of justice, which was a fair and judicious trial followed by a swift hanging. They wanted to do everything that they could to turn the court in their favor. And so their last straw was to drag Jim Kesterson, a U.S. citizen who'd been married to Polly Beck, the deceased in this case, dragged him to Fort Smith to swear out a warrant for assault against a U.S. citizen. At which point, Kennedy says... The U.S. federal court comes into play and U.S. marshals are charged with arresting Zeke Proctor, meaning the marshals would leave Arkansas and ride into the land where the Cherokee Nation had jurisdiction. But let's back up. Zeke Proctor was on trial because of an incident a couple of months earlier. Kennedy says it's an incident smothered in legend and story. Based on the historic record, based on what we've been able to parse out from different family memories, from different retellings of the story, is that Jim Kesterson, a U.S. citizen, had been married to the sister of Zeke Proctor, a Cherokee uh, of some standing, some social standing within the area. He knew everybody. He was very heavily involved in what happened in Cherokee Nation at the time. And Kesterson and Proctor's sister had three children. Meanwhile, in just west of Siloam Springs on Flint Creek, there was a mill, uh, the Hildebrand Mill. Uh, a man, a U.S. citizen named Hildebrand had married a Cherokee woman named Polly Beck. Hildebrand dies. Polly Beck, in order to maintain ownership of the mill, she needs to remarry. And so she ends up, she immediately is the most eligible bachelorette in Cherokee Nation because she has her hands on this mill. Kesterson leaves Proctor's sister, goes and marries Polly Beck, and when Proctor finds out about this, our belief at the museum is that Proctor showed up at the mill in February to confront Kesterson for leaving Proctor's sister. When everything is said and done at the end of the day, there's 
an argument as far as we can tell. There's gunfire as far as we can tell. There are no accounts first person of what exactly happened. We believe that words led to gunplay, which led to Proctor shooting at Kesterson. We believe Kesterson was clipped in one of his ears and Polly Beck is shot and killed. Whether it was heroically, romantically jumping in front of the bullet or if Proctor by some accounts, Proctor had been drinking. By other accounts, Proctor was just there and was shooting. Crazy things happening, gunfights. And so Proctor kills Polly Beck. Kesterson runs off. Proctor immediately turns himself into Jack Wright, a friend of his who is also the sheriff of Going Snake District. David Kennedy says research indicates the first eight days of the trial took place at Jack Wright's home. There was no official courthouse in Going Snake District at the time. Rumors were persisting that a posse would leave Fort Smith for Proctor. On what was supposed to be the final day of the trial, the proceedings are moved to a one-room school on property owned by a family named Whitmire. Such a move could have been to keep any trouble from taking place at Jack Wright's home. And the posse did learn of the shift in venue. That sets off the creation of a posse uh, headed by... Uh, Jacob Owens and Joseph Peavy, who are two deputies who'd been working in that district for many years. The year before, almost exactly the year before this, uh, Jacob Owens had arrested Wyatt Earp as a horse thief in Indian Territory. This is a full decade before the OK Corral. And so Jacob Owens, he goes with Joseph Peavy. They get a couple of their regular posse to hire on some other guys. And so they have a posse about 10 strong. The problem here is the Becks go with them back up into Indian Territory. So they spend on the 14th of April, they're riding up the old Fayetteville Road, which is the highway now. Yeah. Uh, they ride up the old Fayetteville Road. They get to which at the time was Dutch Town or Dutch Mills. Uh, they stayed overnight. The next day, they ride over into Indian Territory. They get to the Whitmire Plantation, to the house there at the plantation. The house no longer exists, but there's still a cemetery there. And they get there. They find out that, okay, the colony of court today has been moved from Wright's house over to the schoolhouse that's on our property. Kennedy says research indicates there was a plan. If Zeke Proctor was convicted by the Cherokee court, the matter was over. If he was acquitted, he was to be arrested and taken to Fort Smith to stand trial there. That lasts until about the time they get to the door. We have about 15 or 20 minutes here that we have no idea what happened. We have a couple of different accounts. Several accounts completely contradict each other. But the most agreement that we see amongst these is that one of the Becks walks up to the door, sees Zeke Proctor sitting at the defense table, lowers his shotgun, and pulls the trigger on his shotgun, emptying both barrels. The first shot is directed down by a guard who's there by the door. The second shot comes up and, as far as we understand, kills that guard by the door. That guard was either Andy Pallone from Cherokee Nation or Johnson Proctor, depending on who, who you hear the stories from. Johnson Proctor was Zeke's brother and one of the people who were killed that day. And so from that point on, you have what we can only guess is 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes of gunfire. Kennedy says the best historic research indicates there were 15 posse members outside the schoolhouse, maybe around a similar number of people inside. At the same time, you have in this clearing surrounding the schoolhouse, most people are reporting that there was a gaggle of people who were either Beck or Proctor supporters. And you can imagine that some of them were armed. So you have at least 30 people armed involved in this gunfight, plus 
anybody who was outside, you could have 40, you could have 50 people involved in this gunfight. And by the time everything is said and done, you have 11 people dead or dying, including Jacob Owens, who was in charge of the posse, including a 19-year-old Riley Woods, who had been picked up on the way in to help out with the posse. Riley is buried right there at the Whitmire Cemetery. On his gravestone, it says murdered. You have on the federal, on the, on the Cherokee court side, you have, uh, I mentioned already Johnson Proctor was killed. Andy Pallone was one of the guards who was killed. You also have Zeke Proctor's defense attorney, Mose Alberti, is killed that day. Beyond that, the judge is injured, Proctor's injured, uh, the, a couple of members in the jury are injured. You've got uh, Joseph Peavy and other members of the posse are injured. And so like, once everything devolves into mass chaos, uh, one of the reports is even that Zeke Proctor is seen shooting his Spencer carbine that had been leaned up against the corner back in behind him because everybody in that courtroom was armed knowing something could have happened. When the shooting ceases, the surviving posse members ride back toward Fort Smith as a telegram of the gunfight is sent ahead of them. Members of the Cherokee Nation are pursuing the posse for crimes committed at the schoolhouse, and warrants are thrown out by both Cherokee and U.S. officials. The next day, Proctor is acquitted, and the national press begins to pick up the story. You have these stories show up in New York, Chicago, Detroit, Philadelphia, Boston, about this horrible gunfight which took place out in Indian Territory and Cherokee uprising. It makes it try to sound like a Cherokee uprising. A lot of the reports end up trying to paint Zeke Proctor as this horrible, uh, vicious Indian who's on the warpath. And it's, I've, I've heard varying descriptions of Zeke Proctor, and I really am not sure which side of this I fall on, but I, he very definitely was not this guy who was just out for blood every chance he got. He, he was a businessman within Cherokee Nation. And there are more, multiple claims, and I've seen multiple charges of assault by Zeke Proctor against different individuals. But there were lots of charges of assault by a number of people out in that area during the time frame. Uh, what ends up happening is, as a result of all of this national press, the United States Congress gets involved. They demand from the White House a report on this horrible event that took place in Indian Territory. A detailed report is released by President Grant's administration and is presented to Congress. David Kennedy says for 18 months, there's virtually no contact between the Cherokee and U.S. governments. After a year and a half, President Grant, through the U.S. Attorney General's office, sends orders to Fort Smith to contact the Cherokee Nation with a proposal. Warrants sworn out by the United States will be forgotten if the Cherokee Nation reciprocates. In the end, no person is ever arrested for crimes connected to the fatal gun battle. David Kennedy says there are fairly unreliable accounts of the incident in white newspapers. In the 1930s, the Works Progress Administration collected Cherokee versions, and Kennedy says those accounts can vary depending on whether they came from somebody who identified with Proctor ancestry or Beck genealogy. Kennedy says ill will remain between the families for generations. The symposium dedicated to the tragedy will be at the U.S. Marshals Museum April 8th and 9th. It will include many speakers, including Stacy Leeds, the former dean of the University of Arkansas Law School. The symposium, we have two days of special experts on a variety of subjects. Uh, we have uh, everyone from former Chief Justice of the Cherokee Nation, former Dean of the University of Arkansas School of Law, talking about 
Supreme Court cases and their impact on the tribe, specifically in her case. She will be talking a little bit about the McGirt case that was up in front of the Supreme Court a couple years ago. Uh, We have a a PhD from Oklahoma City who has studied uh, treaty laws. We have uh, I'll be talking about uh, historic firearms of the West. We have representation from the National Hi- uh, Historic Site in Fort Smith from National Park Service. We have a former employee of Oklahoma Historical Society. We have the uh, history uh, historian from the Cherokee Nation, Catherine Gray. She's going to be coming over. And we'll have the historian from the Marshall Service, Dave Turk. He's coming out for that week. We have some other programs about Cherokee Nation culture and language and genealogy. I mean, we're really excited to have this program so people can get a better understanding, not just of the who, what, when, where, why, but of the deeper understanding of what life was like in Cherokee Nation at that time. What was the role of the marshals? What was the role of the army? Why didn't the army get involved in this? Uh, What were the politics like within Cherokee Nation at the time? And so we can really start to really understand this event. And I know that we have already received a lot of interest from people who are Cherokee, uh, from people who are descendants of the surviving posse members. Even the, There's still relatives of Jacob Owens who are floating around who are really, really interested in this subject. We have different people who are just, just interested in Western history. And it's just this really crazy thing that this particular event as big as it was and as impactful as it was, is still not known by many people. I will personally argue that it's because Judge Parker was not yet in Fort Smith. And the most popularly spread accounts of Fort Smith history can be anchored in the Judge Parker era, while important events immediately before or after his tenure on the court tend to be ignored. But the marshals have been in our country since 1789. They're still there today doing the same job. As, as a result of the McGirt decision, there's more deputies in eastern, eastern Oklahoma than there were 10 years ago, mm-hmm. simply because the job has, the workload has increased that much. The Going Snake Tragedy Symposium is April 8th and 9th at the U.S. Marshals Museum in Fort Smith. Ticket information can be found by going to the U.S. Marshals Museum website, usmuseum.org. And as for Zeke Proctor, the man who was acquitted in the trial? Proctor continues on. He becomes a very successful businessman. He is a politician within Cherokee Nation. He lives his life uh, about 20 years after going snake. He's named a deputy United States Marshal for the Northern District of Indian Territory. David Kennedy is the curator of collections and exhibits at the U.S. Marshals Museum in Fort Smith. He came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio last week. This is Ozarks at Large. Ozark's Lyric Opera presents international opera tenor Michael Spires in Pagliacci, March 25th and 26th at 7.30 p.m. at the Galois Theater in Springfield, Missouri. Tickets and more information available online at ozarkslyricopera.com. KUAF is supported by Pack Rat Outdoor Center, a small business family-owned in Fayetteville since 1973. Pack Rat is dedicated to community, conservation, and waste reduction, A schedule of local cleanups, full moon hikes, and pint night events is available online at packratoc.com. The number of patients with COVID-19 in Northwest Arkansas hospitals continues to decline. The Monday count was 15. Combined for hospitals in Benton and Washington counties, that's nine fewer than the Friday count. 
Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas is among the members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, who this week will be questioning Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson. During opening statements yesterday, Senator Cotton called the nomination of a new justice an important occasion. The Republican also said it's vital that committee members learn her opinions on issues like gun rights and homeland security. I enjoyed meeting with Judge Judge Jackson last week in my office. We had a good conversation, and over the next few days, I'll have many more questions. Let's be clear about this. The confirmation hearing is not a test of how well nominees can filibuster or how many questions they can avoid answering. It's true that there is a tradition of avoiding any stances on how one might rule in specific cases if confirmed, and there's good reason for that. But that's not a license to refuse to discuss one's views. Senator Cotton also said he wants to ensure Judge Jackson does not support expanding the number of justices who serve on the high court. And an auditorium in Little Rock will be carrying the name of an Arkansas musical legend, composer Florence Price. The Little Rock School Board approved naming the Dunbar Middle School Auditorium in her honor. On an upcoming edition of Ozarks at Large, we'll talk much more about Florence Price and a book that's being written about her life. That's in the next couple of weeks on our show. For the past 37 years, you depended on KUAF and NPR for important news, facts, and context. Every day, you learn something new and go beyond the headlines to better understand your world. And it is because of our listener support that we're able to make that possible. Your gift keeps unique programming on the air and available for everyone in our region. Give back to the public radio that has given you so much for more than three decades during our spring fundraiser beginning Monday, March 28th. This is... Ozarks at Large. The Transgender Equality Network will host the annual local edition of Transgender Day of Visibility Saturday, April 2nd at the Jones Center in Springdale. There will be panel discussions, workshops, guided meditation, and this is the Jones Center after all, access to the basketball courts, the swimming pool, and the ice rink. Earlier this month, we reached Joel Manning, president of the Trans Equality Network, by Zoom to find out more about the upcoming day and more about the Trans Equality Network itself. Essentially, it was, you know, a few trans people who met at a, I think, a peer support group. And they just really saw that there was a need for something like this within the community. And, um, you know, especially locally back then, there was not a super visible trans community in the area. Um, And so they started the Trans Equality Network. And essentially, it's purpose and function is to provide resources to the trans community, um, to help people, you know, we answer questions. We get a lot of questions about, you know, Hey, I think I might be trans. Like, what do I do? Like, where do I start? You know? And so it's just a resource for people to go to that, you know, they don't have to be worried about how they're going to be perceived or where they are in their journey. Um, and we also, Uh, endeavor to provide education to businesses and corporations um, on how to have a more inclusive workplace, um, you know, using inclusive language. Um, We're also, you know, trying to have conversations with the community to raise awareness about, you know, transness and what that means, what it looks like, um, and just kind of demystify it a little bit, you know, break down a little bit of those those barriers that we tend to have when we communicate with people who don't understand our experience. I imagine, yeah, part of that is someone who may be looking for guidance, but is kind of afraid of how to ask certain things. Exactly. Yeah. And so we, we try to be 
approachable, you know, to those people so that there's easy access to that information and that guidance. Joel, you and I are talking on the day before NWA Fashion Week begins. How are you working with Fashion Week in, in the 2022 edition? Yeah, so we've actually worked with Interform in the past, and so we were really excited to get to be involved with this project of theirs as well, doing the the Fashion Week and the um, the runway show with Transition Closet. Um, so we're really excited to be a part of that, and um, you know, just getting to first show the trans community that we're here. And it is something to be celebrated, to show up as your true self, celebrate your true self, Um, but also to talk about the importance of fashion and the trans identity, because a lot of people don't realize uh, how much of a barrier that can be. You know, someone who has been socialized one way their entire life suddenly, you know, trying to step into this new phase of existence and not really having a lot of information on how to approach that um, style-wise. Uh, And that can be a huge barrier to a lot of people to accepting their new identity is I feel this way, but I don't know how to look the way that I want to look, or I don't know how to approach fashion from someone with, you know, maybe a body that doesn't fit the the typical body that fits into those types of clothing. Um, So I think it's just super important and it's going to be really fun and uplifting. And I'm just really excited. Let's also talk about what's happening at Jonestown. I believe it's April 2nd, which is, I believe, Trans Day of Visibility, right? Well, so Trans Day of Visibility is actually March 31st, um, but it's like a Thursday. And so we really wanted to give the community a chance to, you know, have an accessible event for people who, you know, work during the week. So uh, we're actually doing an all-day event to observe Trans Day of Visibility on April 2nd, which is Saturday. What will be happening? Oh, lots and lots and lots of things. Um, so it's it's been kind of lovingly referred to as, as TransCon 2022. Um, <laughs> that's not on any official records, but um, it, there's going to be panel discussions, keynote speeches. Um, I'm doing a workshop on radical self-love and self-acceptance uh, through the lens of transness. Um, we're going to be having a trans-exclusive pool party, which is something that is, I think a lot of people don't realize how important that is and how big that is for the community because that's not something we typically get to experience without a lot of anxiety uh, and most of us just opt to not even try so this is something where you know someone may not have ever been able to go swimming in a bathing suit and have fun before and now they get to um, they're gonna have um, access to public ice skating as well and there's going to be the the entire like basketball court gym is reserved for us as well for people to play if they want to play basketball or volleyball uh i think there's going to be a zumba class there's going to be um booths for information and some vendors i think we've got a massage booth so it's just going to be this all-inclusive all-day catered um just celebration of, of transness in the community. What's it been like? You, you mentioned that you've been on the executive board a relatively short amount of time. In that time, have you seen in Northwest Arkansas, in Arkansas, anything change? Have you, have you heard from allies? Have you had pushback? What's it been like? Oh, man, it's been 
a really amazing experience. So, you know, when I first joined, I think it was about March of last year, it's been about a year now, um, I didn't realize that this resource existed. Um, and I had really been looking for ways to connect with the community. And, um, you know, I joined and it was very apparent that we were in a time of struggle, especially with the pandemic, you know, um, the trans community is already pretty isolated, um, especially in, in places like this where you're not really sure how you're going to be received given, you know, which place you're going to, if you're, you know, going to Walmart or you're going to church or, you know, the mall, you never really know what to expect. And that can be really scary and, and really isolating. Um, and so, you know, I saw we were kind of in this phase of not being sure how to meet the community where they were because everybody is so kind of shut in because of the pandemic. Um, but we've slowly gone through this process of kind of a rebirth um, because, you know, while the pandemic has been terrible and it's been really isolating it's also given us the opportunity to choose how to come back how to reintegrate into society and the community and to rebuild you know and to meet the community where they are and ask them what they need and then find new ways to meet those needs instead of just continuing to do the same things we've always done um, so that's been super important and you know, I've only seen more support, especially as this legislation has, has come through and, and just kind of shaken everybody. Um, immediately saw huge outcry of support from the community. Um, you know, our donations are better than they've ever been. We have people constantly reaching out to volunteer, asking how they can help. Uh, and it's just been really uplifting to see the way that the community has responded and shown up for us and for each other. But there are other places not that far away in Arkansas and rural Missouri and rural Oklahoma where people don't have this kind of support, don't have something like the network. Do you ever have conversations and think about folks who are further away you mentioned the word isolation, who are even more isolated than folks here. Absolutely. Um, and we do get people reaching out from all over the place, people who are just trying to find any and all resources. And, you know, they'll reach out from other states, other places in Arkansas, um, just to say, like, hey, you're literally all I can find. Like, can you help me find anything? Uh, and we do our best to help those people as much as we can. Um, but it is our hope that through all of this, you know, the good that will come of it is visibility and it will hopefully encourage other people in other places to form similar organizations. Joel Manning is the president of the Trans Equality Network and spoke with us earlier this month over Zoom. The Transgender Day of Visibility in Northwest Arkansas will be Saturday, April 2nd at the Jones Center in Springdale. You can find out more by looking for the Trans Equality Network Facebook page or by going to transequalitynetwork.org. Our conversation took place earlier this month.
This is Ozarks at Large. Recent numbers from the Arkansas Department of Health show that over 500 Arkansans a year die by suicide. The United Health Foundation says men in Arkansas are more likely to carry out suicides than women. And one particularly disturbing trend is an increasing number of black people who are taking their own lives. Jonathan Reeves, with our partner station KASU, has the first of a three-part interview series about the problem. Reeves interviews Counselor Shaden Duncan with Mid-South Health Systems. Duncan talks about some of the challenges black people may face when dealing with a mental health crisis. Traditionally, in um, the African American community, and you know, and this is something that's common with a lot of communities of color, that um, the way that we approach dealing with difficulties, especially those that are related to you know emotions or thoughts or you know how we're uh, impacted mentally, um, has been a little bit different. And um, you know, in some of our cultures, we're taught you know what happens at home stays at home. So you try to keep those things inside the house. We try to cope with those things on our own. Um, when it comes to mental health related things, oftentimes it's associated with, you know, an issue of a person's strength. You know, are you strong enough to be able to deal with that, to handle that, to cope with that, to get through that, to get over that? Um, or it's some type of, you know, way related to something morally. Um, have you done something, you sinned against God or, you know, you did something wrong to somebody. And so now you're dealing with this issue as a result of that, or, you know, issue of faith. Um, you know, do you have enough faith in God or, you know, your high powers, you understand them to be able to cope with and to deal with those types of issues and to, and to work through those things. So, you know, they're in a sense kept kind of contained and isolated and, and people are not always encouraged in those communities to seek help. Uh, and I think those issues are further complicated because folks have a general distrust for the medical community. Um, you know, oftentimes there are not people that look like them in those settings who are providing those services to them. So there's a, you know, sometimes there's a gap there in the perception of being able to understand and identify with the issues that folks from those communities may be coming from. Um, so you are, you know, a um, young African-American male who, you know, um, comes from an impoverished environment and a low so social economic status, but then you're going to receive services from an older, you know, Caucasian female who is from middle class. And it's like, you know, there's a big gap there. Not saying that those people cannot help and they cannot assist, but sometimes, you know, we want to be able to see people who are providing services to us and, in, in, you know, in, in a way that we know we can identify with. And there's this level of trust um, that kind of comes from that, this level of being able to put your guard down and to be able to share freely and openly with this individual because, you know, they could see things that you're talking about and understand them from that um, perspective that you have or that point of view that, you know, sometimes other people don't really, aren't really able to identify with. So I think, you know, having that and then just that lack of having good coping skills, um, you know, plays a big role here. We start thinking about people that um, attempt suicide or people that complete suicide. Oftentimes, you know, a lack of coping skills and a lack of support is, uh, you know, among those risk factors that we look at or those risk factors that play a role in whether or not people, you know, actually act upon those types of um, impulses or those types of behaviors, those types of thoughts and, and end up completing, you know, those um, attempts at harming themselves. There's a lot of information to unpack here, uh, and we could go in several different areas. One of the things that I do want to talk about is how do you work on or other people work on trying to provide African-Americans with the mental health services that they need, especially when they're facing all of these challenges that you were describing? Yeah. 
So, you know, I can say traditionally, and it's been been known to be this way. I'm not going to necessarily say it's totally this way now, but just know traditionally kind of growing up and in, in, in certain cultures, you know, being the African-American culture, uh, being one of those, you know, the, the community of faith is, is very important for a lot of folks, right? And so um, it was used to be thought that if you wanted to be able to get something to folks in, the, in that community, you needed to go through the church or go through the people of faith. And that's how a lot of things were communicated. You know, even now when, um, you know, people are running for office, they're going to go to the church um, because that's where they're going to be able to, you know, get, get the audience and be able to communicate with the people. Um, so sometimes it's, it's being able to go to those places where we know people are going to be, um, and being able to have those open, honest, um, dialogues and communications about, you know, those issues and making those things, um, seen as, as the norm. Um, one of the things I didn't get to mention previously was, um, um, stigma being a very, very big, big thing. You know, people don't want to be labeled as crazy or cuckoo or whatever those other terms, derogatory terms that folks often used to describe, you know, individuals that have uh, mental health or behavioral health issues or just might be experiencing a difficult time right now. And their thought processes may be a little bit altered because of that. Um, they don't want to be labeled that way. So, you know, addressing the stigma, normalizing, um, seeking help, normalizing, connecting with services, um, making those services more readily available in certain communities because there are certain um, communities don't, that don't have the same um, type or levels of access to services. Um, just in our state, you know, we're in a in a healthcare shortage area. So, you know, there is a shortage of, you know, psychologists and APRNs who, who provide um, psychiatric services or there's a shortage of um, mental health professionals, you know, in our area. And especially now, you know, that everything has started with the pandemic, um, with the great resignation, you know, it's an even more uh, difficult um, climate to navigate in terms of being able to re um, um, get people in to provide services. Um, so th those are things that are a little bit diff difficult, uh, a little bit hard, and those are some of the challenges. But, you know, the more that people are exposed to the information, the more that it is normalized, the more that we educate folks about those types of things in those places where we can find and where we can connect with them, um, I think the easier it makes it for people to be able to, to be willing to take those steps to, to seek services. That was Shaden Duncan with Mid-South Health Systems, talking with Jonathan Reeves from our partner station, KASU. Tomorrow, Duncan addresses why black men are more likely to carry out suicides and what warning signs we should watch for. There is a crisis line number. It's 800-356-3035. Also, tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, we'll hear an excerpt from Resilient Black Women, one of the new podcasts from KUAF that's launching this year. It's a regular conversation geared toward demystifying mental health and increasing access to mental health for all people, but especially black women and women of color. An excerpt from the very first episode on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 p.m. And by listening to the free Ozarks at Large podcast that's available through all major podcast providers. Another new podcast from KUAF, Blockchain, The Future of Money, is now two episodes into its run. And the latest episode examines currency and the invasion of Ukraine. This is The Future of Money, a podcast where we hope to educate and get educated about the new world of blockchain and digital money. My name is Eric Denbor, and I will be your host. We changed our minds uh, a little bit about what we were going to do because we were going to talk about the metaverse and kind of start to get an understanding of that. But the war, what's going on in the world right now, uh, I think 
you rightfully saw that there's sort of a more timely and important conversation we can have right now. Uh, so when I'm, you know, what I'm talking about, of course, is Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and uh, and then all of the fallout that's happened since this has been going on for a number of weeks. There's been a lot of accusations and conversations about hiding money in cryptocurrency. Yes, of course, there is, you know, is illicit stuff going on in the Bitcoin world too. That said, though. Um, when we started talking about this, I had to go back and take a look. And I said, okay, uh, I do have some numbers. I need to find them. <clears throat> and I did find them. 2019, there was about $601 million worth of Bitcoin was used in some form of illicit uh, activities, mm -hmm. right? That same year, there was $673 billion worth of transactions in the Bitcoin sphere. So it's a yeah. it's a fraction. Yeah, actually, it's it's all, it's actually one percent. One percent. Yeah. Right. So it's not really that much. The same year, 2019, there was about 90 trillion dollars worth of money circulating in the world in in U.S. dollars, mm -hmm. and two trillion out of that was used for illicit. You know, that actually is two percent. In other words. Uh, one dollar, every time you use a dollar in money laundering, is the same as 0 0.00125 Bitcoin. When I start to think about it, this makes sense. I mean, dollars are untraceable. They're untraceable. Yes, basically. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but there is a very clear line that you can see with cryptocurrency. Yes, yeah. because every transaction that is done on the Bitcoin blockchain is uh, is uh, very transparent. Yeah. You know, it's it's all there. Every transaction is done. Going back to these oligarchs and all that kind of stuff, you can't, first of all, you can't really hide when you buy Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And there are some of the cryptocurrencies that you can use to hide. Uh, Monero is one of those, but you know, then you're gonna you're gonna go in and buy trillions dollars worth of Monero, and that's gonna show up, and then suddenly people are gonna say, well, we're gonna stop trans do a transaction with Monero for a year, because right? there's been this huge influx of yes. money in there, and and, it, and again, you will see it, yeah. So that that's uh, again, although we are trying to hide money. It's very impossible. And if you're sitting on trillions of dollars and you want to change that into another currency, you don't want to do it $100 at a time. You want to do, you know, several millions or maybe a billion at a time, and right. that's going to show up. Yes. So it's interesting. I mean, it's just like anything else. If you're going to do something illegal, you're going to also need money to do it. Yes. So, um, you know, drug trade and uh, human trafficking and, and guns and weapons yeah. and all the things. When you really start to think about it, it is... It's far more traceable in a cryptocurrency system than yes. in just loose dollars. And I, so there's some conversations going on about regulating this, you know, new markets of cryptocurrency and stuff. One percent is sounds like an amount that's probably going to continue to exist. Yes. I would think people would be more willing to embrace it. Politicians, policymakers be more open to having this conversation about it. But we're seeing that there's some people who've, who've pretty much made up their minds. Yeah, it, it's, yeah, it makes you think, doesn't it? <laughs> War is always made by the greedy people, not by the people themselves. Yeah. And they're the ones that, you know, we really need to keep track of. Mm -hmm. And this is a good way to start. Any questions that you have about this situation, about anything related to cryptocurrency, blockchain, the metaverse, mining, all of this stuff, 
please reach out to us. We have the KUAF Connects line where you can call and leave a, leave us a message. It's 479-575-6577. Or you can actually, if you want to, we created a meetup group uh-huh. called Blockchain Northwest Arkansas, Blockchain NWA. And if you go on meetup, you can look us up and you can join us. And we are a group that is growing every day. So we want to hear from you and we will do our best to answer your questions. All right. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. You can find all of KUAF's podcasts from the future of money to undiscipline through your favorite podcast distributor. This is Ozarks at Large. Yesterday, we caught you up on the Razorback basketball teams. Go Hogs, beat Gonzaga. But there's plenty of other sports this time of year besides basketball. The Arkansas gymnastics team recorded its third best SEC championship score ever this past weekend at the 2022 SECs, finishing sixth. The Razorbacks will find out where they are headed for the NCAA regionals today. Both the Razorback softball and baseball teams are enjoying successful starts to SEC play. The 10th-ranked softball team took two of three from number 14 Tennessee in Knoxville this weekend. Arkansas took a break from SEC play last night in Bowling Green, Kentucky, against Western Kentucky and defeated the Hilltoppers 8-2. Razorback softball returns to conference play this approaching weekend, hosting LSU for three games in Fayetteville. Meanwhile, the third-ranked baseball team swept Kentucky at Bomb Stadium this weekend. That baseball team was scheduled to play Omaha, Nebraska in Kauffman Stadium in Kansas City tomorrow afternoon, but that game now canceled because of expected bad weather. The Razorbacks will resume SEC action Friday at Missouri. And the University of Arkansas Fort Smith baseball team is back in town after splitting a four-game set in Portales, New Mexico against Eastern New Mexico last weekend. The Lions will be in Fort Smith this weekend for four games against Cameron University. First one is Friday afternoon. And Razorback Aiden Owens, the 2022 NCAA Indoor Champion in the Heptathlon, was named the 2022 National Field Athlete of the Year. Voting for the honor, conducted by coaches in the United States Track and Field and Cross Country Coaches Association. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is supported by Little Wing Productions, bringing live music to the auditorium in Eureka Springs. Appearing Wednesday, March 23rd, is American singer-songwriter Lyle Lovett and his acoustic band, And performing Friday, March 25th, is the Marshall Tucker Band 50th Anniversary Tour with the Outlaws. Tickets at thundertix.com for more. The Fayetteville Arts Council this month selected two artists to paint two murals on the retaining walls along Archibald Yale Boulevard in South Fayetteville. Jessica Dabari, chair of the Arts Council and director of creative spaces at Mount Sequoia Center, says the council solicited requests for qualifications, or RFQs, from artists last December, which came due in January. This RFQ went one step further and asked for an idea, but not necessarily a physical drawing because we wanted to be able to pay artists for their time to make a full drawing mock-up of what they would do. So we selected finalists based on those applications, and then each of the finalists received uh, a payment toward making those drawings. The four finalists were paid $500 each to produce a drawing. Those finalists were Colleen D'Antoni, Austin Floyd, Hannah Lloyd-Jones, and Jeremy Navarrete. We selected two artists. Uh, There is a mural 
that is much smaller that's on the north end of Archibald Yale near Rock and the Bulldog. And we selected uh, Austin Floyd for that mural. He had a lovely, fun uh, illustration he created uh, involving several species that are native to Arkansas. Yeah, so he will be doing the upper mural. And then the lower mural, uh, we selected Jeremy Navarrete's uh, illustration for that. He, We were just really impressed with the strong graphic design in the mural. We felt like it would have a great deal of impact visually for people driving by. And it sort of captured this modern but nature-loving spirit of Fayetteville and felt very much like a, a welcome sign for the city. The stipend for the larger 400-square-foot mural is $14,200, which will also go toward supply costs. The smaller 100-square-foot mural award stipend is $3,800. The theme for both murals is Experience the Adventure of Fayetteville. Dabari says murals generate significant public engagement with art and artists. Uh, and I think it's just incredible for artists to have new ways to to share their work. You know, it's no longer just their work isn't in the, the gallery and in uh, homes as much. To have more public art, I, you know, is so important for people that are trying to make a living, too, with, with art with their work. Funding for the Archibald Yale Boulevard murals comes from a bond issue approved by Fayetteville voters in 2019. The murals expected to be completed by early summer. This is Ozarks at Large. The Black Apple Awards are back this Friday night. The recognition of outstanding work in art, culinary, performance, and more is an extension of Idle Class Magazine. The last time the awards were handed out was in the pre-pandemic month of November 2019. This year's nominees can be found at idleclassmag.com. Voting continues through midnight tomorrow night. Among the nominees for Best Show in Radio, TV, Web, or Podcast is Sound Perimeter with Leo Ribe, heard each Thursday on Ozarks at Large. This year's ceremony will be at 214 in downtown Springdale. Yesterday, the founder of the Idol Class magazine and the Black Apple Awards, Cody Ford, came to the Carver Center for Public Radio. We're going to be able to activate it in a really cool way. We're going to have downstairs. The downstairs and upstairs will be, you know, people who went to the ACO shows. It'll be familiar to them. And But we're still going to have a few surprises there. I mean, the, the Black Box Gallery upstairs is going to have neon art and video art and then a few sculptures that are kind of use have their own individual light source. So when you go up, it's going to be kind of like you're walking down this dark hallway, just kind of illuminated by neon. And then you're going to get up there and it's going to be really cool. What is the same for the Black Apple Awards as the last time we had them? We basically had the same awards that we did last time because I just, I mean, in the past we've sort of switched them up, but I've always had like a committee that helped me and I just didn't really have that this time. So I was like, yeah, we'll just do the same ones. I think I might have added one, I, I believe. But so, yeah, that is basically the same as what people voted on in 2019 when we did it before. 
And, you know, of course, we're going to have art. We didn't get to have art hanging up at the Commons, actually. That was one thing I wish we could have done. I mean, we had, like, a few installation pieces, but we didn't have, like, paintings hanging mm. up there just because it, it's not the best space to do that. We would have had to, have, like, brought in outside walls. And, you know, it just didn't work. Uh, so with this one, though, we're getting to have art hanging again, and that is going to be a lot of fun. And I think 2017 was the last time when we did it on, like, the parking deck was the last time we really had people hanging their paintings and things. So that'll be there as well. And, you know, it's just going to be a good time. we got Chef Case Daguerre coming back with hors d'oeuvres like he's done the last few years for us, uh, for our VIPs when they come in. And so that'll be cool as well. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's going to be familiar, but we're going to have some surprises. I was going to ask if anything's going to be different. You say surprise, so I guess you don't want to share those with us. Well, Understandably. I'm, well, I will say um, – Generically speaking, is that we're going to have augmented reality this year, which is really cool. Uh, so we have uh, UVA professor Ringo Jones is kind of heading that up, and he's got some people helping him on it. And that's going to be, I mean, remember Pokemon Go kind of gave us world peace briefly in 2016. So I'm, I'm hoping we can get world peace uh, at the Black Apple Awards this year. But, but basically what uh, that team is doing is they've got, I believe, five of our paintings that we're hanging from various artists. And we're going to have like instructions and sort of a logo so you know when you get to that painting, like, oh, this one is an AR painting. So you download this app and you hold it up and you're going to be able to see the painting come to life. It's going to be animated. So which sounds be fun. cool and like five percent scary. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I didn't quite think five percent, but okay. I mean, I, right. maybe if you're on drugs, it could oh, be okay. like ten percent scary. <laughs> uh, but but I like to see this as as drugs without the drugs. I got you. You know, it's smartphone drugs. <laughs> <laughs> smartphone drugs. Uh, you mentioned similar um, categories. So this takes in art. This takes in culinary. This takes in. Uh, performance as well. So yeah, we're going to have art, we're going to have culinary, and we're going to have performance. There will be um, like some fashion happening in there. There will also be some dancers doing their thing as well. And I, honestly, I still don't know all the details on those. They're still kind of working out, you know, that this week. So I, it's also a surprise to me okay. right now. <laughs> Where can people find out about the nominees? You can go to our website if you want to find out about who's nominated. You can still vote through Wednesday night at, you know, up until midnight on Wednesday night, 11.59 p.m. And it is idleclassmag.com slash blackapple2022. What else should we know? How do we get there? So one of the tricky things about finding 214 is because it is called 214, which is also the name of its street number. And it is 214 South Main Street. Don't put north or you end up like by a church somewhere and don't search Art Center of the Ozarks or you end out on end up on Wagon Wheel Road somewhere. So it is 214 South Main Street. It is like in, in Springdale. It's about two blocks off of Emma. You can see James and James Furniture kind of across the parking lot. So, yeah, you just got it's a little bit tricky to get there. But, you know, on our website, we do have a link for, uh, you know, Google Maps and everything that'll take you right to it. and You can see it. Here's the thing. If you're if you get on Emma from uh, Thompson, yes, take a right. If you get on Emma from Crossover, take a left. There it is. On yeah. Main. Yeah. All right, Cody. Uh, break a leg? Can I? Can yeah. I, yeah I okay. Mean, sure. I, you can say good luck to me. I, I'm not superstitious well, like that. Well, then very much good luck. Because I, I might legit break a leg between them. <laughs> I have <laughs> this <laughs> real fear that something major is going to happen and I miss the awards on Friday. So, so let's just go with good luck on good it. Good luck.
Cody Ford is the founder of the Black Apple Awards. The 2022 awards will be announced Friday night at 2.14 in downtown Springdale. Nominees and more information can be found right now at idleclassmag.com. Scott Family Amazium in Bentonville presents a spring break destination for family exploration through the arts and sciences and math moves. Experiencing ratio and proportion in the museum's traveling gallery. Amazium.org for tickets, information, and more. Before we close out this Tuesday edition of our show, a shout-out to Willie Carlisle, the singer-songwriter who's been kind enough to be on our show multiple times, is included on the spring 2022 playlist included with the latest issue of No Depression Magazine, a quarterly journal of Roots Music. Willie's Boy Howdy Hot Dog is one of 40 featured songs, along with selections from John Prine, St. Paul and the Broken Bones, The Hold Steady, and others. You can find out more at nodepression.com. This is KUAF 91.3 Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Goodman, Missouri. Timothy Dennis produced today's show. Contributors included Lee Wood, Eric DeBoer, Jonathan Reeves, and our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. From the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Kellams. Let's end with Willie Carlisle. Doctor asked me where it hurts Born to fish, forced to work Don't let them tell you what your broken heart's worth Fire ant on the sugar trail Tail feathers on a nightingale Arrowheads and bones is all you'll find Boy had a hot dog, pretty good life Pretty little house, pretty big wife Let's me wear her underwear anytime I please Well, she's thick as a forest and a cavalry of bushwhackers Never seen a bald number bullets wouldn't scatter Well, she's thick as a forest and a cavalry of bushwhackers Never seen a bald number bullets wouldn't scatter God dang, I'll be go to hell This bar's mostly peanut shells But if you'll drive, we can play pool Hot pockets, sweet potato pie, Saturday, Sunday rolling by. Take off your pants, let's watch TV. Boy, had a hot dog, pretty good life. Pretty little house, pretty big wife. I can't recall my ex-wife's name. But the love you lost is right where you left it. All right, gone forever, boy. Go ahead, forget it. But the love you lost is right where you left it. All right, gone forever, boy. Go ahead, forget it. Them coals are turning bright red, firewoods in the truck bed, rivers running low this time of year. 